Daniel 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because, he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king, feared, those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride... He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from, from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. <clears throat> but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. 
Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. <clears throat> but you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Here is what these words, these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, I, d- I don't know how often you get time to sit down and watch a film, um, but when you do, uh, I wonder what type of film you enjoy. There's all sorts of different genres you can flick through, isn't there? Um, but in our house, we particularly like films that are based on true stories. Um, I don't know if that rings true for you or not. Sarah and I recently watched a film called The Courier, which tells the story of a British businessman called Greville Wynne in the 1960s. Some of you may have seen it. If you haven't, I'm going to try my hardest not to spoil the plot for you. He was a salesman uh, who traded in electrical equipment uh, in various different places, uh, and he, he had business around Eastern Europe at the time. And in 1960, he was recruited by MI6 and asked to set up business accounts in Moscow. This was with the aim of having a convincing cover story so that uh, he could act as an intermediary or a courier for a man called Oleg Penkovsky. I'm seeing some smiles and some nods in the audience. Some of you have seen this. Maybe some of you even remember it. Um, Oleg Penkovsky was a high-ranking officer in the Russian intelligence service, and he had offered to pass along secret material. This was all around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So um, this was all quite important. Uh, You never know when you watch a film like this, do you? How many of the details in the film are, are accurate? How many of them are an accurate depiction of events that actually happened? And there's always some artistic license, isn't there? But as you watch the film and you see some of the risks and the adventures that Greville goes through, um, you, you sort of you start to associate with yourself with him, don't you? You, uh, you draw alongside him and you're rooting for him. You want him to win, you want him to survive, and you want to know what happens next. And for me, the fact that, these fact that these, this story actually happened um, only makes it all the more interesting. And then you get to the end of the film, and it shows you, you know, images of the real Greville Wynn. This is what he looked like. Um, and a couple of short interview clips with him. Uh, and it tells you what he did for the rest of his life and how he died, and so on. You become really invested in the character, and then we like to tie things up with a neat little bow at the end, don't we? to find out what happened. I think they do the same thing at the end of Bake Off, don't they? <laughs> this person opened a bakery and this person bought a dog and so on and so forth. We, t- we tie it all up, neat little bow, 
We want to know what happens to the characters that we've grown to love. And that's why the beginning of Daniel chapter 5 is a little bit of a surprise. The first four chapters of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has been the king. We've seen him go from crushing Jerusalem in chapter 1 to acknowledging that God is the revealer of mysteries in chapter 2 to being humbled and moved to praise and exalt and glorify the God of heaven himself in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has been the king all through these first four chapters, but now he seems to just vanish. He drops completely off the scene. The first two words of chapter 5 are, King Belshazzar. Well, where are the notes about the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and whether he bought a dog and how he died? Hasn't, hasn't tied that bit of the story up with a neat little bow that we would want, has it? And actually, this is a bit of a pattern in the book of Daniel. After chapter 3, you never hear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego again. Um, what kind of history text is this? Seems to be a bit incomplete, doesn't it? And it's a reminder to us that this book of Daniel that we've been studying on Sunday evenings is not primarily a history of Nebuchadnezzar or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or even Daniel, for that matter. I mean, to be sure, they're all significant characters in the story, aren't they? But it reminds us that this is a story, this this book of Daniel that we have is a story that's given to teach us about God. It's given to teach us about God. The primary purpose of this part of the scripture is to point us towards the most high and sovereign God and to give us confidence in his sovereignty over all of human history. It's here to give us confidence that he can and he will equip generations of his people, including us, to serve him in a hostile world. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not about Daniel. It's about God and what God is doing. So what is God doing in Daniel chapter 5? What can we learn from how God acts here? I'm going to look at Daniel chapter 5 this evening under the heading, God is sovereign regardless of human contempt for him. God is sovereign regardless of human contempt for him. And just to make sure we're all on the same page, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we say God is sovereign, we're talking about God's right, God's power, and God's will to reign as king over every aspect of his creation. God's right, God's power, and God's will to reign as king over every aspect of his creation. There's a lot more you could say about God's sovereignty, but that's going to be our our working definition for this evening. We've seen God's sovereignty to bless his servants in chapter 1, God's sovereignty to rescue his servants from the fire in chapter 3. We've seen God's sovereignty to bring down kings and establish them in chapters 2 and 4. This is God sovereignly reigning over every aspect of his creation. And in chapter 5 tonight, we're going to see that God is sovereign regardless of human contempt for him. So firstly then, we're going to look at human defiance 
to God's sovereignty, human defiance to God's sovereignty. King Belshazzar is an arrogant man who thinks that nothing can touch him. He's the king over the mighty Babylonian Empire. Babylon uh, had been the mightiest empire in the known world, possibly even one whose splendor as an earthly kingdom would never really be matched. Remember chapter 2, if you were to flick back, where God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream of a great statue representing a series of kingdoms that would arise on the earth. And in verse 38, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you are that head of gold. Remember, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. There's a hint there, isn't there, that the superiority of the Babylonian kingdom is unmatched. And Belshazzar is now its king. And this King Belshazzar, if you look down at chapter 5, verse 1, this King Belshazzar decides to throw a party for a thousand of his nobles. That's a pretty big party, isn't it? What are there? There's maybe 100, 100, I don't know, I'm not very good at estimating numbers. 100-ish, let's say, people here this evening. So that's 10 times this number of people, the nobles, and you're having a party while the army of the Medes and Persians is camped outside the city walls. He's so supremely confident of his kingship, of the position that he has, that he's happy to throw a party while they're camped there. Perhaps he thought he had reason to feel secure. Listen to um, Stephen Miller's summary of Babylon's defenses. He says, Babylon was a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat and then by an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick. That's what, six meters or so? And reinforced with defense towers at 60-foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another double wall system, an outer wall of 25 feet thick, and an inner wall 23 feet thick east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. This is a well-fortified city, isn't it? And it seems that within this fortified city, Belshazzar imagines he is safe, and he parties away with the enemy camped at his door. His arrogance meant he thought that nothing and no one could touch him. And he's not just arrogant. He displays a contemptuous idolatry. Look back at verse 2 with me, if you will. While they're drinking, Belshazzar decides to call for the gold and silver goblets that have been taken from God's temple in Jerusalem. And the party proceeds to drink from these gold and silver goblets, goblets that were made for service to the living God. And as they do so, what do they do? They offer praise to the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They worship created things rather than the creator. 
There's no thought here, is there? As they party and they drink, there's not a moment's thought for the honor and glory of the living God. He's dismissed with contempt. There is no respect. There is no fear of God. He's dismissed as if perhaps he too had been subjugated when Nebuchadnezzar rampaged through Jerusalem. Daniel, speaking to Belshazzar a bit later on in verse 23, gives his own summary of the events that have taken place. He says, speaking to Belshazzar, he says, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You took items that were dedicated to his praise and service and used them to intoxicate yourselves while praising idols which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. There's an air of contempt, isn't there? There's an air of dismissiveness. He does not care for God, and God is treated as nothing. And the final thing I want to pull out, looking at Belshazzar's defiance against God, is that he did not have the excuse of ignorance. Richard mentioned this um, uh, just a few minutes ago. He didn't have the excuse of ignorance. He had no excuse for acting in the manner that was ignorant of the sovereignty of God. I find um, one of the challenges of trying to discipline children appropriately is trying to work out what it was reasonable to expect of them. What was it reasonable to expect you to know and to do in this circumstance? When I was young... We were staying away with some family friends um, and we were all sat down to our evening meal and we'd started eating uh, when I exclaimed loudly, and I remember this and I've been reminded of it lots of times, but I exclaimed loudly, these peas are disgusting. <laughs> I have a feeling I've told this story before. At, at the time, I don't, I don't think I really understood why it was a problem and why my parents felt it was so important for me to apologize. As far as I was concerned, those peas were disgusting. I've no idea how old I was, um, but maybe, just maybe, I was young enough that I did not understand the social convention whereby it's rude to tell your hosts that their food is disgusting. <laughs> Children, don't do it. <laughs> it's not worth it. I could, I could maybe claim ignorance, couldn't I? But Belshazzar cannot claim ignorance of God. In verses 18 to 21, Daniel recaps the story from chapter 4 of Nebuchadnezzar being humbled until he acknowledges God. And then he says to Belshazzar in verse 22, But you, Belshazzar his son, have not humbled yourself. Although you knew all this, you have not humbled yourself. You knew how God had dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. You knew how God had stripped Nebuchadnezzar of his glory. You knew how Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal until he acknowledged that the Most High God is the king and is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth. You knew all this. You knew what God had done. But you did not humble yourself. It's what makes Belshazzar's defiance of God all the more offensive, isn't it? And what makes God's judgment against him particularly severe? 
you've had the privilege of seeing God at work, of knowing without a doubt that he is there and he is sovereign to do as he pleases, and you've dismissed him. You've treated him with contempt. Belshazzar is not ignorant of God's sovereignty. He is defiant against it. So we have here a man, King Belshazzar, who is arrogant and he thinks nothing can touch him, who treats God with contempt and worships idols, and who cannot even claim ignorance of God's sovereignty. This is defiance, isn't it? Defiance against God's right and God's power to rule over his creation. And I think there's a question here that we all need to honestly contemplate at some point, isn't there? Am I acting in defiance against the sovereignty and the rule of God? Have I humbled myself before God? And specifically, I want to point out that anyone who is sat here this evening cannot really claim ignorance. Can you? Perhaps you're a young person who's grown up in this church. If you've attended for any length of time at all, you have heard that there is a God who made the world and who rules over every aspect of his creation. You've heard that you need to humble yourself before him or face his terrifying judgment on your sin. You've heard these things. You've been given a a privileged position, haven't you? You know actually even more than Belshazzar ever did. You have heard of Jesus. You've seen and heard the eyewitness testimony of Jesus that we read in the Gospels. You've heard that he died for your sins and rose again. You know that he calls you to humbly put your trust in him. And live. You know that only Jesus can be your saviour. Do not be like Belshazzar and fail to humble yourself before God despite knowing what you know. Please don't continue in defiance against him. Because if you do, the severe judgment of God will fall on you just as it fell on Belshazzar. You need to repent. You need to repent and turn to Jesus before, before you ever get that far. That's the first point. There's human defiance to God's sovereignty. Secondly then, as Daniel enters the scene in verse 13, we see a humble faith in God's sovereignty. A humble faith in God's sovereignty. The context of Daniel chapter 5 appears to be one um, in which Belshazzar does not have a particularly high view of Daniel. Daniel, um, of course, at one point was, had quite an elevated position in Babylonian society, didn't he? But now he has been humbled. At the end of chapter 2, after God used Daniel to explain to Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the statue dream, Daniel is made ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed in charge of all its wise men. That sounds like quite a senior position, doesn't it? But by the beginning of chapter 5, Daniel seems to have been forgotten and faded into obscurity. Belshazzar, in verse 7, if you look down, instead uh, of calling on Daniel to interpret the writing on the wall, instead calls on this familiar group of enchanters, astrologers, and diviners who failed his father 
so spectacularly in chapter 2. Daniel's been forgotten, and it takes the queen in verse 10 to remind Belshazzar that Daniel even exists. Daniel's been humbled, and when, when he does get there in verse 13, Belshazzar reminds him of his status. He says, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought from Judah? He's saying, you're a, you're a small little man, aren't you? You're a nobody from a people who was crushed and subjugated by the Babylonian Empire. In this room full of nobles, of which Daniel is clearly not one, uh, Daniel is an outsider. He's an outsider. He no longer enjoys the influence he once did. Daniel's been humbled, and Daniel is uninterested in earthly power or wealth. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, when Daniel um, is offered the gold chain and the position of being the third highest ruler in the kingdom, what does he say? He says to King Belshazzar, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. He's not interested in what the king has to offer him. What would move someone, do you think, someone like Daniel, to turn down such riches and such power? Perhaps some of you read the announcement in the news uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, that world number one tennis player Ashley Barty has decided to retire. Um, You may not follow tennis, but hopefully this illustration will still make sense to you. She has been world number one for 114 consecutive weeks. It's over two years. It's quite impressive, isn't it? Uh, She has won three Grand Slam singles titles and apparently amassed career prize money in the region of £18 million. That's just the prize money, of course, never mind the sponsorship deals and all of that. She's only 25 years old. She's perhaps not yet even at the peak of her career. There's so much potential ahead of her in tennis. Why would somebody like that choose to retire? And she said in the interview that I read, uh, because after achieving her ultimate personal goal in the sport, she still wasn't quite fulfilled. She still wasn't quite fulfilled. She's turning down the ongoing success and influence and wealth that she could earn as a tennis player because actually she's decided she wants something better. She's getting rid of that because she wants something better. And Daniel is the same here. He's not interested in the rewards that the king can offer him, the gold chain and the position of power, because actually he wants something so much better. He wants what only God can give him. It's a sentiment echoed by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them... Garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The treasure of knowing God and having life with him, the privilege of being God's servant, is better than the greatest treasure of earth. Christ is always better, isn't he, than any earthly treasure. Daniel is uninterested in earthly power and wealth. 
And one final thing to note about Daniel here is that he must be a pretty old man by now. (coughs) History tells us that Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, from 605 BC to 562 BC. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue in the second year of his reign. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years. The reign of Belshazzar ended in 539 BC, which is where we are in chapter 5. It's the end of Belshazzar's reign, isn't it? This, this very night is going to be his last night as king. Well, that, to my mind, would suggest that Daniel could have been in Babylon for as long as 65 years. That's a long time, isn't it? And even allowing for ignorance of, my ignorance at least, of certain aspects of history in this time, he's been there a long time and he's now an old man. But for all of that long time, Daniel has remained faithful to God. He's still here. He's still humbly and quietly serving God as he is called upon. After decades in Babylon... He remains a man who humbly trusts God and will walk into the palace and speak a message from God. He remains a man who humbly trusts that God is sovereign to do all that he says he will do. Can you imagine if Daniel had delivered this message to the king? If he'd gone in and said, "Um, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, and then it never happened. He'd look a bit of a fool, wouldn't he? But he doesn't, he doesn't worry about that. He humbly trusts that God can and will do exactly as he has said he will in this word of judgment. Well, I think Daniel is a lovely example, isn't he, of a humble faith in God's sovereignty. Daniel can overcome the fact that King Belshazzar has no regard for him because He trusts in God, and it's God's regard he cares about. Daniel can reject the king's offer of power and wealth because he has a humble faith in God to bless him and give him all that he needs. Daniel can speak God's word to Belshazzar because he knows that God will fulfill that word. Daniel has been able to remain faithful to God for decades as an exile, because he humbly trusts that God is sovereign. He's seen it, he knows it to be true, and even if God's purposes are not always evident to us in the short term, Daniel knows that God is still exercising his right and his power to rule. So let's ask ourselves a question, shall we? Will we persevere in humble faith, as Daniel did for long, dark periods. I think it's a real encouragement to us, isn't it? It should be an encouragement to us to see Daniel in this city of Babylon, equipped and sustained by God to persevere in humble faith for all those years. Some of you here have already trusted in God for decades, and we thank God for you and for the grace that has sustained you But as we look forwards from here, we need to hold on to to our understanding of God's sovereignty, don't we? We need to keep trusting that God rules and that God will do all that he has said he will do. 
We need to constantly remind ourselves that the blessings of knowing God are greater than all the tempting treasures of the earth. And we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray, Lord God of Daniel, we are weak, but you are strong. Will you help us to live with humble faith from now until the end of our lives? Amen. If James can do it, I can do it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Good. So we've seen Daniel's humble faith, and then thirdly and finally, God's sovereignty shown in judgment. God's sovereignty shown in judgment. We've seen Belshazzar's defiance, Daniel's humble faith, but ultimately, of course, God is sovereign regardless of whether or not people recognize it. It doesn't matter to God, does it, that Belshazzar uh, acts defiantly. It's not going to stop God from fulfilling his purposes. God is sovereign in judgment. King Belshazzar, ruler over one of the mightiest and most glorious empires the world has seen, sits there in his impenetrable, supposedly, fortress city, and he cannot escape the judgment of God. As he drinks from the consecrated goblets from God's temple and praises these blocks of wood and stone, God sends the fingers of a human hand to write his judgment on the wall. And before he even has any idea of what these words mean, Belshazzar becomes a complete wreck of a man, doesn't he? Look down at chapter 5, verse 7. Belshazzar is ignorant. He cannot understand the writing on the wall, and neither can any of his astrologers, enchanters, and diviners. His wise men and his gods are useless to him. He remains in ignorance, doesn't he? Belshazzar is desperate, so desperate that he offers the the third highest position in the kingdom to whoever can help him and a gold chain. He's desperate and he's terrified. Look at verse 6. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Delraf Davis points out in his commentary that the, the literal translation would be the knots of his loins were unloosed. I'll let you consider what that might mean. It's, it's dirty, isn't it, and humiliating for Belshazzar. He's a, he's a wreck of a man. His failure to humble himself before God means that he is brought low even before the judgment is pronounced. And then there's the judgment itself in verse 25. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. According to the commentators, these seem to be some sort of derivatives of different measures of weight, the mina, the shekel, and the half mina. And Daniel approaches the interpretation in two steps. First, he's at pain to make sure Belshazzar knows why he's now subject to God's judgment. That's the purpose of the discourse about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in verses 18 to 21. He says, you knew God most high is sovereign and you refused to humble yourself. And because of that, secondly, he explains what God's judgment really is. Daniel's interpretation of the first word, mene, is that God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. This is an emphasis, isn't it, on the sovereignty of God in judgment. God has looked at you, Belshazzar, 
and has decided to number your days. There's no consultation. There's no uh, right of appeal. There's no higher court. There's no notice period or compensation. There's no tolerance of different points of view. God has decided, and it will happen. God has decided, and it will happen. God's sovereignty is exactly this, isn't it? God rules. God decides. God is always right. Full stop. That's the sovereignty of God in judgment. The second word, tekel, is interpreted to mean that you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. It's clear here, isn't it, that God uses a different set of scales to what we might use. When in our society we weigh up people on Instagram, we look for wealth and power and um, attractiveness, don't we, and sort of healthy skin to attribute to people some sort of value. But God's looking for something different, isn't he? God's looking for something very different. God is looking for a man who fears him and who humbles himself before him. And Belshazzar is found wanting on God's scale. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. The third word is parsin. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The thing that struck me about this as I was thinking about it was that it's quite specific, isn't it? It's quite specific. The kingdom is going to be taken away from you, Belshazzar, and given to the Medes and the Persians. It emphasizes not only the end of Belshazzar's reign by God's sovereign judgment, but also the ongoing sovereignty of God deciding to give it to someone else. I'm taking it from you, and I'm going to give it to this person here. The Medes and the Persians. And that very night, in verse 30, all of this happens very quickly, isn't it? Belshazzar is slain. The impenetrable fortress walls that Belshazzar relied upon proved to be no obstacle to the sovereign plan of God as the Medo-Persian army manages to break into the city. The prophecy of Daniel 2, revealing the rise and fall of different kingdoms, is fulfilled, isn't it? Or at least the first part of it is fulfilled. The head of gold gives way to the next kingdom. Belshazzar's contempt for God is met by God's sovereign judgment. What a powerful demonstration for us of the sovereignty of God in judgment. Belshazzar set himself up against the God of heaven, but God would only tolerate him for a little while. What encouragement can the church take from this? I think it's this. Those who treat God with contempt will surely face his judgment. Those who treat God with contempt will surely face his judgment. So when the self-styled philosophers of our age, the new atheists, laugh and say to us that religion is nothing more than a useless and sometimes dangerous accident. When we're bombarded as Christians with ridicule and told there's no evidence for God that faith in Jesus is for idiots, will God put up with that contempt forever? What about when 
the education establishment and the teachers in our schools won't even entertain the thought of creation because they're so steeped uh, in their naturalistic approach to the world and consider anything else unscientific and laughable. Will God put up with that ignorance, that contempt towards the creator forever? What about when we're accused of bigotry and abusive behavior by LGBT activists? And they warn people against coming to our churches because of the harm that they might face. Will God stand for that defiance forever? What about when tyrants wage wars and cause pain and hurt and injustice because they imagine that no one, let alone God, can stop them? Will God put up with that wickedness forever? Can we treat God with contempt forever and just get away with it? Belshazzar showed contempt towards God and he met with God's sovereign judgment. And that's part of a biblical pattern. All who vainly imagine that they do not need to humble themselves before God will certainly meet the same end. Perhaps um, you'd like to flick to Psalm 2 with me, because I think this quite neatly summarizes what happens to Belshazzar in chapter 5. And perhaps some of what goes on in our world today. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. That is the contempt of Belshazzar, isn't it? That is the contempt towards God we see in our world today. And what is God's response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He's not concerned. God is not frightened by them. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. When people ridicule you, they're setting themselves up against the living God. And what we see in Daniel 5 and what we hear again in Psalm 2 is very clear. God laughs at them. God laughs at each and every one of them and one day he will terrify them in his wrath. Belshazzar's day of judgment came and judgment and wrath is coming for all who continue to defy God. It might not be immediately. There might be a certain amount of suffering That happens before the Lord returns. But take heart, Christian brothers and sisters, because God will certainly do all that he has promised. Nothing can stop him. Not the walls of Babylon. Nothing. He will bring his sovereign justice on the wicked and he will bring his reward for all those who have continued to humbly trust in him. Do not fear those who stand against you because you are God's servant. 
Do not fear those who show contempt towards God. The Most High God is sovereign. He rules regardless of human contempt for him. Trust him like Daniel did. Serve him faithfully and don't let go.